Today I'm going to talk about the second foundation of mindfulness, working with Vedana, being mindful of Vedana, and Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A, is the Pali word for that quality in every moment, the quality of the moment that is experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the Buddha gave us four foundations of mindfulness, four places where we're supposed to develop a very steady inquiry, and it may take a lifetime to deepen mindfulness of a particular foundation. The first foundation is the body. The second foundation is Vedana. The third foundation is the mind and all the actions and the dynamics of the mind. And then the fourth foundation is called dhammas, and it's the process by which we suffer and the process by which we get free. It's the dhamma that he is interested in and how to develop your own freedom, how to learn from your own experience what really is going on around suffering and what really is a path to freedom. So we're going to turn our attention to the second foundation, Vedana. And just to answer a question that came up earlier uh, um, about whether we should be using modern scientific language versus arcane uh, Buddhist language. And my experience, um, my stepfather and my mother are neuroscientists, so I've had a 52-year relationship of talking to uh, cutting-edge neuroscientists. My stepfather um, did a lot of Uh, early research on brain plasticity. If you're listening to this at home, his name is Ford Ebner. So I actually got uh, my whole life, the dinner conversation, you know, included neuroplasticity when I was growing up. And when I talked to them about first-person subjective experience, they don't have any language for the first-person subjective experience of having a brain They have a lot of language for looking at the brain from the outside. But when I ask them questions about do they notice and do they have sophisticated uh, experience of not their psyche, which they get a little weary of because it's psychology, you know, for them it's a soft science, but like the hardcore understanding that your brain is active and they go, yeah, and that's why we have this experience. Oh, yeah. Have you ever noticed or studied that? And it has never occurred to them (laughs) to study their own brain and how it produces their subjective experience. And they actually don't have interest in studying that. So when I talk to them about, you know, what would you say as a neuroscientist about this very important subjective experience? As like, God, we... We just never ask those questions. And neuroscientists are starting to ask those questions, but um, there's, we're not quite there yet where neuroscientists can actually, and if they practice meditation, they often become very interested in the subjective experience of their own brain. But um, I think we do have to learn some old poly words until we find other words that might work better for us culturally. So... There's not a good translation of this word, Vedana. Um, It's a whole mouthful that you actually have to say the whole mouthful to get what is Vedana. 
it's the pleasant, unpleasant, or the neither pleasant nor unpleasant aspect of every single experience at your ear, your eye, your nose, your tongue, your body, and your mind. Every experience as it is, as you have that experience, has a Vedna tone. If it doesn't stand out, it's probably what we shorthand called neutral, but the Buddha was specific in saying it's not painful nor unpleasant. And he actually kept saying it, so, you know, he probably had a good word for neutral, but he kept saying it's not pleasant nor unpleasant. And I think that there's something illustrative about the fact that he would use that phrase versus it's neutral. I'll talk more about that in a bit. So if we can learn words like karma and Buddha, we can learn other words like Vedana. And there's a handful of words that are really worth getting to know because they map on to your direct subjective experience and they give you things to start teasing apart what's actually going on. And there just isn't good English uh, for that. So we're going to talk about uh, Vedana. And in exploring Vedana, you'll actually see that we're going through very similar territory of what John talked about in terms of the Four Noble Truths, Four Noble Truths a few nights ago. And I think that's why uh, this topic um, is a really good example of what our suffering is really about that we don't understand conventionally and what the path of freedom is really about that we don't understand conventionally. So working with the second foundation, it's another thing that behooves you to put on the little hooves and give you traction <laughs> on your suffering uh, to not just listen to the talk tonight and be inspired and then move on, but start ripening mindfulness into the experience of displeasure, the experience of pleasure, and the experience of neither pleasure nor displeasure. Because it's where all of our drama is rooted in. It's also rooted in ignorance and misperception, but you can't get from ignorance and misperception into very entangled drama without passing through Vedana. And if you can work with Vedana there's a whole bunch of very complicated sufferings that you just can't manifest if you can actually learn to breathe with Vedna as it's occurring. So it's worth highlighting what's happening around Vedna, how it arises, and how we become mindful of it. So one question we can ask is, um, why are we not free? And the reason we are not free is that we have a conventional misperception of what is actually going on, but we don't know we have a conventional misperception. So because we misperceive, every strategy is put through a filter of misperception, and yet we don't know we're misperceiving when we do it. And what we don't understand, Vedana is one thing we don't truly understand, we don't understand impermanence. And we'll probably talk more about impermanence and how to be mindful of impermanence as its own deepening investigation. But we live in a liquid universe. 
And some things are uh, very firm liquids that are slowly changing, and some things are very airy liquids that change very quickly, but there is actually nothing solid you'll never contact in this universe of the, all these sense door experiences something that is actually permanent. There is something called Nibbana that does have the quality of permanence, but everything else, which is most of our experience, is fluctuating. But a conventional mind gets away with perceiving that things are stable, and then we are heartbroken when that misperception causes us to have a lot of friction with the actual world. So you can look at this bell, you can look at this room, you can look at your own body, you can look at other people, you can look at anything. And if it looks like it did earlier, you say, same. And you get away with that until you don't. And when you don't, there's suffering. But you don't know, we don't learn from that. We go right back to looking for something we can count on. I couldn't count on my iPhone 2, but I'm sure my iPhone 4 is really going to do it because they improved everything. So this one is going to be reliable, but it wasn't reliable. But oh my God, they say the 6 has a thing called dragon glass. Oh my God, that's got to be permanent. And that wasn't permanent. Got a little key gouge right on it. So you get the next one or whatever your thing is the mind keeps doubling down because it doesn't know it's misperceiving. Which is why it can never actually get to a place of happiness because every strategy is built upon the misperception of permanence. So what we end up doing, and if you, if you want to suffer a little less, you just slightly change your view. <laughs> How many people would like to suffer a lot less <laughs> to suffer a lot less, you actually have to see what's actually going on and then navigate how navigate within the stream of reality. So we're in a liquid universe and we have to begin to perceive how fluid everything is. If you take five different size jars of water and you pour or you pour water in one and then you pour it into the next glass, the water immediately lets go of the shape it was in, goes through chaos, and then takes the shape of the next container. But it doesn't say, okay, now this is my new shape. The next time you pour water, it will immediately adapt. And you can sneak up on water, you can do it quickly, you can tell a story and get its attention over here and then put it in another glass. Water never resists. You could put, um, chocolate in one thing and the water won't jump out. It'll have the same rate of change. And you can put broken glass in one and the water won't hesitate. It won't be like putting a dog into a bath that doesn't want to go in. It doesn't resist. I used to spend a lot of time when I was younger uh, doing river canoeing. And I would watch the water go over waterfalls I was like, God, it, it has no, it doesn't like take a breath. It doesn't psych itself up. It just flows and lets go. It's like, God, it just keeps letting go. I don't have that kind of courage. Going over that waterfall, I would at least like go to the bathroom first or <laughs> you know, I'd like shake off and I'd like breathe a little bit. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of transition. And then you look downstream, it's totally fine. But 
it just keeps lazily going over and then falling apart and water just doesn't care. It just doesn't resist, which is why liquid water can't hold stress. You stab it with a fork and it just splashes and as soon as you stop stabbing it, it, cal- it calms down really quickly. But if water freezes, in that attempt to get more security by becoming rigid, it now can bear stress and it is now not adaptable. And that's what we are doing instinctually is we have unconscious and conscious freezing patterns looking for security against all the liquidity that's happening. But then you take this thing and it holds on to the glass and it slightly melts and it funks into the next shape and it can't really adapt. And maybe it melts and then refreezes and say, now I want this to be permanent. And it's setting itself up for the next non-adaptability. So everywhere we start to lay down resistance or um, the, the, it's craving that becomes clinging and that rigidity of mind looking for security will set ourselves up for incredible stress because nothing is really secure. Even your little liquid, even your little frozen hold on is made up of liquid parts. You just can't hold on. Last thing I'll say on this level of talking about what we're heading towards is there's a moment of deep insight where you go from knowing the world is liquid but instinctually still hoping there's a holdout of a permanence or a set of liquid things you can get in a fishbowl and finally protect something. And something gives way. And in that moment of giving way, you become what's called a stream enterer. And you've actually been in the stream the whole time, but like a fish that keeps trying to get out of the water to find security, it rolls into the stream and realizes, I was actually built for this. I'm of this. I'm not of things other than the stream. Relaxing into the stream is like coming home because that's the world we actually live in. So you're already in the stream, but you wake up to the stream. And in that stream, no strategy of resistance makes sense. No strategy of trying to, f- trying to build the perfect sandcastle makes sense. You relax into the stream and you realize that I, there's no stress when you are streaming. The cost of streaming is itself streaming. So it's unpredictable, it's fluid. There's no control. You can't marshal all the forces of a river but nor does a river try those strategies. Having spent a lot of time on rivers, they don't try to control. They don't try to straighten themselves out. They don't try to move the rocks apart. They do move rocks, but not by intention. Another thing is there is unpleasant experiences. So I'm gonna break your heart tonight, but I'm going to give you something better. And I'm gonna break your heart by saying you will fail always at avoiding pain. And there is nothing, no dream you can cook up that puts you beyond the experience of unpleasantness. Sorry to break the news. But once you know that and you give up trying, you can then actually do something that brings about a kind of happiness that doesn't need you to get beyond 
transient painful experiences, we're actually gifted with a heart that is trainable. We're gifted with a heart that actually is boundless in its capacities. And this human heart has the capacity to be conscious no matter if your experiences are painful, pleasant, or neutral. So you go from being chained in an unworking strategy to where your happiness is now no longer dependent upon the Vedana. But the way you do that is you have to be able to breathe with the Vedana as it happens. So that's what I'm going to move into. So, broke your heart that there is no strategy beyond pain. Breathe with that because that will always be revealed to you. It's a, it's a truth. Having these sense doors, you will feel pain. But you are gifted with a heart that can be expanded to where it is not troubled by the pain experiences. So the Buddha gave some examples of Vedana in trying to turn to this foundation. And the first two are to talk about the uncontrollability of Vedana. First one is from a short sutta called The Sky. He said, just as various winds blow, winds from the east, winds from the west, winds from the north, winds from the south, dusty winds, dustless winds, cold winds, hot winds, mild winds, strong winds, so too various Vedanas arise in this body. So could we stop the wind coming from a different direction? We cannot. The winds blow and the winds blow by their own conditioning. Vedana arises by its own conditioning. And just as we don't know five days from now, five weeks from now, which way the wind's gonna blow, the chances are there will be wind, there will be breeze. So Vedana is like that, it's like the wind, all different qualities, all different directions. He also said, suppose there is a guest house and people come from the east, west, north, and south, and they lodge there. Not sure if any of you have been in the restaurant business or the hotel business, but you don't know who you're, who's coming. You just have to kind of be open and people choose you to come to the restaurant, choose you to come to the hotel. So suppose there is a guest house and people are coming from all these different directions and some of them are Brahmins, some of them are warrior castes, some of them are uh, merchants, some of them are workers, and they lodge there. And they said, so too various Vedanas arise. So you don't know who's going to book your rooms, but it's going to be one of these three Vedanas. And you just don't know half a breath from now, which Vedanas are going to be booking the rooms of your six cent stores. But they come, they stay for as many days as they need to, many hours, many seconds, and then they go by their own timing, not by our choice. But luckily, these Vedanas are impermanent. And that's that's an important thing to know because when Vedana gets, when we get really entangled in Vedana, we lose the intuition that it's impermanent. But one of the saving graces is you only have to work with the Vedana on hand. You're not having to work with this Vedana forever. It just seems like forever when you lose perspective. So knowing that it's impermanent, 
you can then risk working with it directly rather than screaming for, can't you get me out of this? A lot of you come into the meetings with the teachers and there can be a subtle, how do I get out of this? Like, I tried accepting it. That didn't work. <laughs> like, how deeply did you accept it? Oh, really deep. Really deep, and it was still there. So give me another tool. It's like, you know, there's more acceptance. It's like, this thing happened. It's like, yeah, what do I do about it? It happens. Like, you notice it. I know, but I don't want to have that thing happen. Like, well, could you stop it? These things happen. Vedanas arise. But they're impermanent, and that ends up being the key to how to work with them. Plus the willingness to work with them. So in the... um, in the 16 steps of the mindfulness of breathing, when the Buddha would start somebody, he would just say, when you're breathing in, know you're breathing in. When you're breathing out, know you're breathing out. And then there are those 16 steps of progression that lead through uh, calming the mind down, really being intimate with the breath, and then beginning to notice impermanence. That was the last four steps, is noticing impermanence. Through the impermanence, the strategies of drama don't make sense. It's just a waterfall. Why would I try to make something permanent out of a waterfall? Best just to leave it be a waterfall. So you become disenchanted, dispassionate about those strategies. And in that, there's a, the mind releases its uh, grounds for suffering. Not its potential for feeling pain, but its ground for suffering which is another thing to start to tease apart. There's a difference between painful sensations and suffering. If you have room for your painful sensations, they are unpleasant and they can be hard to bear. But if they're not bigger than your mind, you don't end up having suffering. Suffering is a mental anguish in response to what we don't want. That's torturous. But if you have a mind that can breathe with a greater range of experiences, they still will be unpleasant, pleasant, or neutral. But there isn't uh, the multiplication of the anguish by having it cause mental suffering. And that's psychic suffering that feels very personal, that drama that comes. No Buddhist teaching, no other teaching, will ever get you out beyond having to face temporary unpleasant experiences or the fact that pleasant experiences are cannot be made permanent. So everything, everybody who tells you they have some solution beyond that is not telling you the truth. They may be deluded or they may be running a scam, but there is no way out beyond <clears throat> the transient experiences and the changeability of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So again, uh, this is pulled out in more detail in the second mindfulness sutta of importance. There's the Anapanasati sutta, which is mindfulness of breathing. And then there's the Satipatthana sutta, which is the four foundations of mindfulness. And how to work with Vedana, there's a lot more detail in how to work with it, with mindfulness. The Buddha says to be ardent, to be alert, to be mindful. So you all are in that category by staying here for as long as you are. There's repeated this uh, verb, viharati, to make 
a sacred dwelling out of your practice. So keep reminding yourself you're on a sacred journey. Your boredom is part of your sacred journey. Your pain is a part of your sacred journey. Your pleasure is a part of your sacred journey. That's what uh, repeating viharati means. And then you begin to know pleasure, pain, and neutrality. With pain, you do have to be careful that you not uh, go too deeply too quickly if you have the option. Because until we learn how to accept pain very deeply, our instinct will be to suffer with it, and that will be wearing. So I've learned to do what's called pendulation. And pendulation is where you go towards the pain, and then when you feel the quality of your mindfulness start to degrade, because you only have so much bandwidth for so much pain until you start to get reactive. Rather than getting reactive with the pain, you, if you can, you bring your attention out where it can be restored, where you can dissipate the growing frustration, the growing impatience, the despair around the pain. Catch your breath and then you might choose to go back and explore pain. Sometimes pain doesn't give you the option, but if there is skill around working with pain, it's how to move towards it, and then how to take a conscious break from it, and how to move towards it. So as you're relating to pain, it's a conscious inquiry that has a taste of patience, that has the taste of some degree of acceptance that this is part of my experience. If you already hate it, and you turn towards it, and the hatred of it, and the impatience, and the alarm goes up, you're willfully meeting the pain, but not with not, not with much mindfulness. So it can be helpful to start working with pains that you don't instinctually feel are threatening. Some discomfort wouldn't be your first choice, but there isn't a lot of alarm around that discomfort. That you can turn towards, and for some degree of time, you can begin to explore. I am consciously choosing to build intimacy with the direct experience of what is unpleasant. You also do that with pleasure. So however you find pleasure here, you consciously move towards it. The trick with pleasure is you won't be buffeted against it. The unconscious response is to try to get lost into it. And so there's a dream equality, and it's like, why be, why be mindful? It's just so pleasant. <laughs> Like the part of the pleasure is that I get to kind of check out a little bit and just float half conscious. It's like, well, there won't be a lot of learning in that. And you'll still think pleasure is a great resource or it's a great refuge. But if you show up and actually are conscious of pleasure, you see how fleeting it is. That ends up being bad news if you think pleasure could be something that could be a security. But its fleeting nature has you move out of that strategy. So the first time I started being conscious of my pleasure, every now and then there would be chocolate put out by a generous yogi. So if you're hoarding your chocolate, try sharing. (laughs) Let other people explore their Vedana. And I really, you know, tuned into it. And it's like, I'm looking forward to it, looking forward to it, bite it can't taste the sweet on the front of my tongue, let it roll back, I can taste it. And then there is a, an up and a down. And then when you really tune into the up of pleasure, it's like, is that what I'm chasing? You know, I, it's not as great as it promised. 
the actual experience of pleasure is like, is that all there is to pleasure? It's like, ah, it's a little bit disappointing. What else could give me the security that I think pleasure should give? It's like, it's just pleasant. It's not more than pleasant. That's an important thing to begin to witness, uh, not force the interpretation, but just be intimate with pleasant experiences. And through that intimacy becomes evident. If you're not intimate with it, you can keep the dream alive. But if you start to be intimate with pleasure, you see it comes and it goes. And then it often fades into neutrality. And so you need a hit of something else. It's part of the novelty of experience that you get the dream of the pleasure being consistent. But if you really pay attention, it fades, as all pleasure does. And then being mindful of what we will, in the shorthand, call neutral. But experiences that don't have a pleasant quality and don't have a neutral quality, because of our survival tendencies, we're, we have this uh, very ancient technology that we won't be happy, but we will survive if we run on very old animal technology, which is if it's pleasant, get more of it. If it's unpleasant, get less of it. And neutral just doesn't show up as a survival strategy. So either you space out and rest yourself in neutral or move on to is there any pleasure or pain that I should be sorting out? Neutral doesn't help with uh, short-term survival strategies. So we tend to have a dismissal of it. So this is something you, you tune into. And again, what you want to tune into is to see if you can tell the difference between the object of your attention and this very narrow band of pleasure or pain or displeasure. So when you glom them together, there's not a lot of learning. Yes, I have this ancient pain in my back. And I look at it, that is pain. It's a very dense, reinforced interpretation. There is this thing, it's painful. Those times when I can actually go towards it and breathe with it, I can see, oh, those are body sensations and I don't like them. They are painful to a degree, but the pain seems to come and go. Sometimes it's very painful, sometimes it's very acceptable. So these two things are not automatically fused. Um, I have a thing for chocolate M&Ms or peanut M&Ms and in my unconscious mind they're very fused with those things are pleasant. And you probably heard me tell this story before, but um, one, after a year I'd been in Burma, my dad sent me a care package and it had a pound of M&Ms in it, these peanut M&Ms. And in my generous mind, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll share these and I'll eat one a day and I'll really just use all my mindfulness to extract all the pleasure out of it. And then it just sat there calling to me and calling to me. I could feel the degradation of my intention to share it. And the degradation, I was like, oh my God, this is so defeating. Uh, here I am, I've been a monk for a year and I've borne a lot of difficulties, but this bag of M&Ms is gonna break me. 
It's like, well, you better share it quickly so you don't get tied up in it. But it was after... um, uh, There wasn't a lot of time to share it. (laughs) Because monks can't hold on to their food. And so this, like... I watched my will crumble. I started eating them. And I started eating a lot of them. So I was like, well, lean into it. And I got to explore. There was so little pleasure in that pound of M&M's. But there was a lot of compulsion to seek pleasure. And I was like, wow, this is... So I have learned a lot through my defeats. My willingness to see it and then see the compulsion and how off the strategy is, but how driven the strategy is. I feel like the last 30 years has been a lot of waking up through defeat, but seeing why my mind got itself unhappy through its misperception. There's a famous discourse that's known by uh, the title, The Two Arrows. Um, And it's uh, Samyutta Nikaya 36.6, the sixth sutta in that collection. And the Buddha comes to teach some of his students about Vedana. And he said, uh, students, Ordinary people experience pleasant vedana, which is sukha vedana, the same word sukha plus vedana. Ordinary people feel painful vedana, dukkha vedana. And they feel neutral vedana, asukha adukha, which means not suffering, not pleasant vedana. The next sentence, he says, well-instructed disciples also feel pleasant, painful, and neutral vedana. So what is the difference, he's asking them, What's the distinction? And they say, you're the teacher, you know these things. If you tell us, we won't be embarrassed. They don't say that. But just tell us the answer, because you're going to say it much better than we could. And we'll really pay attention and learn, which is a good strategy if you're talking to the Buddha. So he said, when touched with painful Vedana, ordinary people then also experience sorrow, grief, lamentation. They beat their chest. They become distraught. So they feel two pains, a physical and a mental pain, just as if a person were shot with an arrow, and right after they were shot with, a, with another arrow, so they would feel the pain of two arrows. A physical pain and a mental pain. When a well-instructed person feels painful Vedana, they don't add sorrow, grief, lamentation. One arrow is hard enough. I wish you all as few arrows as possible, but may you not double or triple or quadruple your arrows. Breathe with the arrow at hand. Then you don't have to add a lot of reactivity and suffering on top of dealing with an arrow. I mean, an arrow is hard enough, but by habit, we add a lot of um, reactivity to pain. As ordinary people are touched with painful Vedana, they become resistant. So this is starting to get into sankharas of deepening grooves. So when newborn babies are born, they don't have any strategies. And when they're in pain, they just cry. And it's a very tender cry because they're in pain. But as the pain passes, so does their crying. 
as babies get around nine months, they start to get frustrated by their pain. It's a different type of pain. It's a different type of crying. It's not the, I'm in so much pain, and there it passes. You can start to tell that there's starting to be a resistance, like, ah, I'm nine months old. Why is this still happening? (laughs) And then they start to learn, I can navigate these things. If I cry a certain way, I get attention, and I don't have to feel this pain. I start to get some soothing from my parents, which makes the pain look better, so babies start to learn early on. There's resistance to pain, and then as the years go by, we don't build capacity to be with pain. We start building strategies, and they get more and more complex. So he says to his students, when ordinary people are touched by painful Vedana, they become resistant then those who so resist painful Vedana, an underlying tendency of resistance against painful Vedana comes to underlie their mind. So it can start to be a deep tendency that is even unconscious. When touched by painful Vedana, they yearn for sensual pleasure. Why is that? Because the ordinary person does not know any escape from painful Vedana other than sensual pleasure. When those who seek sensual pleasure, in those who seek sensual pleasure, an underlying tendency to lust or craving for pleasant Vedana comes to underlie their mind. They do not know, as it is actually present, the arising and the ending of these Vedana. And they who lack the knowledge an underlying tendency toward ignorance to neutral Vedana comes to underlie their mind. And then the opposite is true for people who have practiced, is that you learn there is another option that would not have occurred to you conventionally, which is turn towards the pain but not fight it, breathe with it so you don't multiply the reactivity and the suffering, and then see that it's not one thing, it's waves. And so you can rest between waves. When I was a a monk for a year in Burma, one September afternoon, I got very ill. It was the beginning of what has been 20 years of living with chronic fatigue. And I can't now remember how painful it was. But there were several years where the subjective experience of pain was unmeasurable about how much pain was happening in this body. And if you'd given me an out, I would have taken it, even an unconscious out. But I didn't, there was no escaping it. And so the only thing that made a difference was to turn towards it and use these tools to breathe with it. And I learned that it came in waves. And when the wave was intense, you really had to breathe with it. And if your mind got distracted, all of a sudden your mind would get outraged But if you could keep relaxing your mind and work with the pain at hand, it was meetable moment by moment by moment. And it was immeasurable and it was meetable. So this image came to my mind after suffering for a long time with the chronic fatigue. It was actually evolving my mind and the outcome I wished for myself, which was a greater range of perspective a greater range of not being, of not complicating my life because I couldn't take the pain. And when I was healthy, pain was always something I opted into with practice. 
but it was easy not to opt into it. The gift of the chronic fatigue is that it made it something I had to work with uh, 24-7. I had to learn to live with pain and strong pain that couldn't be managed or curtailed. And so the only thing that made it survivable was mindfulness, was learning to breathe with it. And if I hadn't worked with it earlier, I wouldn't have standed a chance to work with it at the level it was presenting itself. So it also behooves you to work with it before it gets intense so that you have some orientation to build upon if you happen to come across pain, which you will. But pain at a threshold may be higher than you've experienced before, both physical pain and emotional pain. But by being able to meet it, I saw that it was dynamic. And all I had to do was pay attention when it got intense. And then there'd be, because I had been there when it was intense, when it backed off at all, there was a sense of relief. So again, this image came to my mind that I've shared with some of you. If you were to take a party balloon and you take a bowling ball and maybe you put olive oil or something (laughs) and you put it into the balloon without ripping it, this bowling ball is inside the balloon and it's stretching it. And the balloon might say, I wish this bowling ball wasn't here. It's so stretchy. It's taking up all my space. If you take that same balloon and bowling ball and you blow just a little bit of air, now the balloon is a millimeter larger than the bowling ball. And the bowling ball is not defining its shape. It's inside it. So the bowling ball does 99.9% of the work of stretching the balloon. You meet it and blow just a tiny bit more space. And then by the balloon surface, it doesn't even know it has a bowling ball inside of it. Does that make sense? Is that like a a thing you can track the physics of that? So the chronic fatigue was stretching me and the resistance made that stretch really painful. So I learned to breathe with it. And then there'd be a point where it was totally taking up an afternoon of my life. It was all I could experience was meeting the pain. And then there'd be a moment where I could breathe and just add a little more space than that pain. And in that moment, all the pain was a part of my experience. It didn't define my experience. And in that millimeter of just a little bit more space around it, I had perspective, which meant that my mind would not be entangled in the pain. Just given a little space for my mind to be able to meet it and accept it and be a little larger I wouldn't suffer, I would just be able to breathe with the pain. So this is a a secret pathway that you won't figure out conventionally, although each one of you has been with this, with maybe a seven day cold, or sprained ankle, or paper cut. You don't like it, at some point you realize you have to live with it, you bitch and moan a little bit, and at some point you say, that's not really helping, so I'm going to accept the fact that I have a small pain, a large pain, for what are my standards. And then there's a coming to terms with it, and you stop adding distress to the fact that you're not having what you want. And in that moment, you're as large as the challenge, 
And then maybe you're a little bigger and the pain goes into its dynamic nature that it begins to fade just a little bit. And you're actually quite well before the pain even has to leave totally, which would have been your guess earlier on. I won't feel relaxed until this pain leaves me. I actually, if I can meet it and breathe with it, I realize I'm okay even if it stays around. This is a journey that you are all on because there you will be visited by pain. You can resist it and you'll see you suffer more. If you learn to breathe with it, you will suffer less and you can actually reduce your suffering while still actually experiencing pain. That is the beginning of liberation from an old tactic that never would have worked to begin with and the dawning of a new tactic that can meet a greater range of experiences. Paying attention to pleasure, you see that pleasure can be a medicine for what it does in the moment. Pleasure can soothe the mind, it can reassure the mind, but it also is fleeting. So you realize it's not as trustworthy as our conventional views make it out to be. But you can spend a lot of time in the fantasies and in the strategies of how do I increase pleasure. Now there's chocolate cake pleasure, but so there there is uh, vacation pleasure, or so there is lottery fantasy pleasure, or so there is um, perfect house pleasure, or so there is the perfect set of conditions that I'll experience pleasure, so I'll feel that relief I have associated with pleasure. If you pay attention, you'll get so familiar with that level of pleasure that it starts to turn neutral. And even and then you need that level of pleasure even just to uh, hit normal. Does that make sense? Can you start to rock that? So here's a story around that. My dad is a, uh, was a professor at Brown University. Um, I, all my parents were professors at Brown University, my stepmother and my stepfather, so I've had four <laughs> parents at Brown University. So my dad was into neuroscience, he was into European history. As he retired, he was invited to go on these uh, five-star river cruises in Europe, and he would be the local guest to kind of talk about European history. And one time, they had enough people that he got a plus one and they got to go with him. So I am not used to the luxury that they were able to create on this barge. It was an old working barge hull, but they built this five-star hotel on top of it, and everything was exquisite. The way the lights worked and the mirrored surfaces, and it was just beautiful. Like a tiny little bathroom, but it was so much more pleasant than my bathroom at home. It was a tiny little thing that they could fit on the barge, but I was like, it's a it's exquisite in here. And the way all the levers worked and everything, I was like, it's so pleasant. And then they made these incredible catered meals. And I was like, how did you do this on this boat in the middle of, you know, going, going up this river? Um, I'll get the name of the river. I'm spacing on it now. But they were able to, like, we have, like, seven different types of croissants and we have all these cheeses and then you can have scrambled eggs and you can have hard-boiled eggs. If you're not into eggs, we have this whole other type of breakfast. And if you're not in that type of breakfast, here's a whole other type of breakfast. And walking around, I was like, I just cannot believe this abundance. 
And then I sat with the people who could afford that trip, and many of them were uh, wealthy people. They could afford this as their vacation. And they all had actually lived a life where this was their normal. So they started having good days and bad days. No matter how much pleasure they had around them, it didn't actually make a difference to their happiness. They would have good days and bad days, and I've seen that for myself. I used to go canoeing in northern Canada, and I would give up all the comforts of uh, middle-class living to sleep on the ground and be in the rain and have mosquitoes around me. But then I would start to have good days and bad days. I'd have good days and bad days, and it didn't matter the material comfort. You need a certain amount so you don't feel threatened, you don't feel an aggravated pain. But no matter what the standard is, we're very adaptable, and that becomes normal, and then you start having pleasure and pain. So this idea that pleasure uh, becomes some type of security, it actually becomes uh, the backdrop, and you start having good days and bad days around it. And then you need that level to even hit what you think is tolerable. So one time we had uh, salmon on this boat, I was like, how the hell did you get salmon on this boat? And the woman next to me was like, oh, I hate it when it's this dry. And I was like, how are you having that experience? Like, what world do you live in that that's a disappointment to you and you're starting to look around for the waiter? It's like, you're not getting it. But for her, that was, it had become standard. So when I've been around very wealthy people, I don't find them actually that much happier, but we can still get into the fantasy that a little more would be a strategy for happiness. And it just becomes a new normal. And then you have good days and bad days, so it doesn't actually win. But if you look at the amount of times we're trying that strategy conventionally, it's a lot. So when I was trying to figure this out as a teenager, I got to read um, the book of philosophy and poetry, uh, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. And this is one little thing has been so instructive from uh, my waking up process. It's just a one sentence, and he said, the lust for comfort, that stealthy thing that enters your house as a guest, then becomes the host, and then the master. That's what being pleasure-oriented does it looks like it's going to be great, but that whole underlying tendency to need pleasure, to start to feel like an experience is worth having, will keep betraying you, so you have to keep re, uh, replacing it with something else. It actually isn't a good refuge, but conventionally it's what a lot of people are consciously and unconsciously oriented towards. Yet, if you watch pleasure come, I won't, even the Buddha doesn't deny that there is um, a gratification that comes with pleasure. The danger is trying to make it secure, and the escape is to realize that it's impermanent. So he uses this uh, formula. There is something gratifying, I will admit that. There is something dangerous about what is gratifying, and that's getting trapped in it. And the escape from the trap is to realize it's impermanent. 
So then you don't. You can enjoy what's pleasurable, but not make a trap out of it. We've started, when it, if I started practicing about um, 30 years ago, and at the time, translated into English, all desires seemed bad. Desire was the root of all evil. And then a little more time of maturing in that, the actual experience of desire, the actual ex- experience of giving yourself pleasure is not necessarily a bad thing. And so there's been a graduation from condemning desires to looking at what starts to become craving. And craving is where we start to be drawn out of acceptance and we start to distort something as being more worthwhile than it ends up being. And we start to pursue it, which means we come out of balance in relationship to it. So this sense of craving. And the Pali word tanha is actually uh, translated, it's, a, its word actually means thirst, more than craving. So if you imagine that your mouth has gone dry and you need water, craving is not like, oh, that would be nice. Craving is I can't survive without this. I'm really diminished until I have this. My happiness is starting to get very bound up in whatever is pleasant. I'm thirsty without it versus I'm drawn towards it. So I wouldn't be worried about being drawn towards pleasant things, about enjoying pleasant things, even going out intentionally to have pleasant experiences, massages, time with friends, going to the beach, whatever is pleasant for you, there will be a gratification, there will be a nutrition. It can be something that restores the heart. But you have to have a conscious relationship to it because it's not guaranteed that that object will be pleasant or that you can get pleasure in some type of predictable way. Um, I've gone out with friends and I've been in bad moods and they don't it's not the expected experience to be in their bad mood or I've been in a bad mood. So pleasure is actually um, something to adapt your conscious relationship to it. And one of the things is just to have an intimate relationship with it, a direct intimate experience. And that resolves it. You don't actually have to train yourself to seek out pain, endure pain, and to deny yourself pleasures. That, that's one very crude way A better way is just to become intimate with it. And by being intimate with it, you know its nature. And its nature is to be transient. And being transient, you don't create traps around it. You don't create these underlying tendencies. You know how to breathe with a certain amount of discomfort before you get alarmed. And from that, you don't have an automatic, unconscious reaction to what's unpleasant. You don't wrap yourself and start dreaming and start making a lot out of what ends up being a transient, pleasant experience. It just is what it is. That mind state suffers less. That mind state actually can be cultivated. And unlike pleasure, which is fickle, and unlike barring pain, which never can be won, actually developing a heart that has an increasing range of experiences that it's not thrown by, that actually has no limit. So as an uncommon strategy, as a non-intuitive, a non-conventionally intuitive strategy, breathing with 
what's un- this, uh, what's uncomfortable. So you stretch your range, breathing with what's pleasant intimately to see that it's transient. The mind starts to actually take refuge in what's neutral. Vivid neutrality is one of the most secure, reliable places you can be in the fluctuating world. Vivid, but through the direct experience, as people wake up, there can be wakeful moments where the whole measuring of pleasant, unpleasant begins to fade. And as you eat chocolate, it's just a collection of flavors. And you wouldn't even call any one of them pleasant. It's not neutral, which might have a connotation of being bland. It's just, it was distinct, I was there, but it didn't have this, there was no pleasure in it. Because there was no pleasure doesn't make it bland. It actually can be a very fascinating experience but I had no draw to it and I didn't try to linger with it and I didn't try to pull anything. It was just, well, that's some very vivid, that's well-made chocolate, very vivid, distinct flavors. And then it faded. Or what a beautiful sunset. It's not the colors that are pleasant. It's the state of mind that isn't being graspy. That is actually where my well-being is being born out of. Then your well-being is liberated from the Vedana, and the well-being is born out of the healthy heart and mind that won't be tripped up and doesn't feel anxious about things it can't control. It has a greater range that it can handle, a greater range of reality that it knows how to navigate. And that well-being itself might not feel pleasant, but it feels so peaceful when people have the choice of feeling the waftiness of happiness and the peacefulness of non-reactivity, people end up choosing, I'd rather have that beautiful, vivid neutrality than even the pleasure of happiness because happiness stirs you and it can be a little bit destabilizing and then when it fades, what are you going to do? But if you're in vivid neutrality, it's just a collection and stream of experiences and There's peacefulness and aliveness in that stream and there really is nowhere to fall. It doesn't pass vivid neutrality. It passes because the mind is conditional, but in vivid neutrality, it's like you're already laying on the floor looking up at the stars. You can't fall from that. But if you're looking for happiness, it will change. And if happiness was necessary, then as happiness turns calm, there's a sense of deflation. So again, uh, you're all of the age to have had vinyl records or of the age where vinyl records are coming back. (laughs) (laughs) And what happens with mindfulness, this is just another analogy, is that when you're working with vinyl records, you want a very sharp needle to get the best sound. And what the needle does is it doesn't prefer any other groove on the record to any other groove. It just 
rests right in the immediacy of what's happening right underneath it and symphonies appear, or rock music, or the blues. As that needle dulls, it doesn't land so precisely right in the moment. It broadens out. And what you want mindfulness to do is start having this exquisite resting right in the stream of what's happening. And in that stream, there are many things going on. And one part of the stream of what's going on is Vedana. If you care to look at it, if you care to increase your intimacy with it, it becomes something interesting. I've never seen anybody be able to do a whole hour of just Vedana. It's usually with the breath and then noticing the Vedana quality of the breath. Or a transient thought passes, you notice the Vedana of that. But just studying Vedana itself is a hard place to only have your attention. But while you're tasting the present moment, begin to taste this is a pleasant experience. I want to taste the pleasure element of the experience. Where would I, where would I land? I know it's pleasant, but how do I know it's pleasant? There must be pleasure somewhere in here because it's part of my experience. And you think, wow, it's actually a very small part of my experience. I call this whole thing pleasant, but the part that's actually pleasant is a very small part, and I'm getting that worked up over this. When you really look at it, it's a very small, fleeting part of experience. When you don't look so closely, it merges with the experience, and that's how you see it. This is pleasant, this is unpleasant. But you get that sharp record needle resting right in the flow of what's happening, and you start tasting through that experience. You can start to reveal Vedana, that it comes, it goes, it comes in waves. It's actually not linked with the object. It's somewhat independent of the object. Chocolate is not always pleasant. Sharp sensations are not always painful. Sometimes they're just vivid. So you might be able to tease those things apart and start looking at Vedana, If you can breathe with the Vedana, there isn't a cascading of drama and reactivity that ties us into very complicated knots. So one part of the teaching is learning how to breathe with the Vedana at hand and then to watch out for all the proliferation of drama that would happen if you weren't mindful of the Vedana. And that's why the Buddha pulled it in as if there are four foundations of mindfulness, why Vedana get such a prominent role. Four is a very little number, and Vedana is one of the four. And our freedom is is inextricably linked with that ability to allow for Vedana to come and go, not to strategize, to look for pleasant and to avoid unpleasant, and to space out on what's neutral. Last thing I'll say, there's always a last thing, is Don't be inspired about this now and forget about it tomorrow. That can happen with Vedana. There's so many things to track. Take it on and build as much of a relationship to Vedana as you have with your breath or sounds. Get to know it. Uh, your, Your freedom depends upon it. So with that said, let's rest for a little bit together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.